I wanted to uh, pick up on the theme of this morning uh, about weariness and um, wholeheartedness and weave it into a talk about the secret of happiness. So the talk is called The Secret of Happiness or The Willingness to Learn from All of Our Experience. Uh, and I wanted to begin with a part of, part of a poem by Pablo Neruda. Actually, um, the first part of the poem and the last part of the poem. And it's called Walking Around. It so happens I am sick of being a man. And it happens that I walk into tailor shops and movie houses, dried up, waterproof, like a swan made of felt, steering my way in a water of wombs and ashes. The smell of barber shops makes me break into hoarse sobs. The only thing I want is to lie still like stone or wool. The only thing I want is to see no more stores, no gardens, no more goods, no spectacles, no elevators. I stroll along serenely with my eyes, my shoes, my rage, forgetting everything. I walk by going through office buildings and orthopedic shops and courtyards with washing hanging from the line, underwear, towels, and shirts from which slow, dirty tears are falling. Uh, so that, that, the feeling tone of that is a kind of weariness, being sick of being here. Uh, and how do we gradually shift from that perspective uh, to being willing to learn from our life and to um, not get too worn down from our own resistance to life? So the Buddha taught that the secret to happiness is waking up from ignorance. Uh, so the idea is that we tend to get lost in our own drama or lost in our storylines. And we can sometimes sense that feeling of being asleep at the wheel. That's being lost in resistance or this weariness. So the secret to happiness is waking up as if from a deep sleep. We're waking up from our own dream and from being so separated and alienated. The mindfulness practice uh, <clears throat> is the application of mindfulness to our moment-to-moment -moment experience, and it requires the willingness to uh, be with our moment-to-moment -moment experience whatever it is. And if we do this with some kind of sincerity of heart, um, it will be inevitable that we develop wisdom and compassion. And it will deepen as we apply more continuity of mindfulness to our experience. So often we get um, a glimpse of wisdom and compassion and we will have the experience of how wonderful it feels. 
and we will often get more and more motivated from these moments where we feel that um, joy and happiness of being awake. Uh, This is a cartoon that uh, my sister, who died this year, had on her refrigerator. Uh, And I really love it a lot. And it's a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon. And it's about ignorance is bliss. So for those of you who don't know Calvin and Hobbes, Calvin is a little boy who is likes to get into trouble a lot. And Hobbes is his stuffed animal and his best friend. So Hobbes is a tiger. Uh, and he's pushing Calvin in a little red wagon down an incredibly steep hill. And just to give you a sense of this, uh, they they go down this uh, hill and then it turns into a forest and the, the, <laughs> the path is winding. And so they're barely crashing into the trees and then they make it through that and then they hit this huge abyss. Um, so that's just, that's the idea. So here's Hobbes pushing Calvin and Calvin is holding the little handle and all excited that they're going to go down this big hill. And so <laughs> Calvin, he's not even leaning back to Hobbes. He just says, it's true, Hobbes. Ignorance is bliss. <laughs> and so then they start getting faster and going through the trees and just missing them. And so Hobbes is looking very upset. And so Calvin says, once you know things, you start seeing problems everywhere. <laughs> And once you see problems, you feel like you ought to try to fix them. And fixing problems always seems to require personal change. (laughs) And they're, you know, twisting through the trees. (laughs) And change means doing things that aren't fun. I say phooey to that. So (laughs) now Hobbes has turned, uh, no, Calvin has turned around and is screaming at Hobbes, and Hobbes is looking stiff as a board, terrified. But if you're willfully stupid, you don't know any better, so you can keep doing whatever you like. <laughs> and now they're, they're just in a total nosedive. <laughs> he says, the secret to happiness is short-term stupid self-interest. And then Hobbes finally freaks out, and he says, but we're heading for that cliff, and he has one hand over his eye. (laughs) And Calvin has both hands over his eyes, and he says, I don't want to know about it. (laughs) (laughs) And then they go flying off the cliff, and then (laughs) they've completely crashed, and they're just coming to. And (laughs) And Hobbes says, I'm not sure I can stand this much bliss. (laughs) And this is my favorite line. Calvin says, careful, we don't want to learn anything from this. So we wonder why we end up like the man in the Pablo Neruda poem. 
where we, we're sick of being here. You know, we do it over and over and over. <clears throat> so the Buddha taught <laughs> that the secret to happiness <laughs> is waking up. And as we start to do the mindfulness practice, we start to see that, that it's really simple each moment. We're either willing to be here or we're not. You know, we're either awake or asleep. So is ignorance bliss. Calvin says, once you know things, you start seeing problems everywhere. And fixing problems seems to require personal change. And change requires doing things that aren't fun. So if we're willfully stupid, we can keep doing whatever we like. So the secret to happiness is short-term stupid self-interest. Or, the Buddha said, the secret to happiness is developing long-term wisdom and compassion and overcoming self-centeredness. We face that choice every moment. The Buddha taught that there's no greater happiness than peace. And this means, this happiness means that we're not resisting our experience. And when we're free, it means we're free from being lost in any identification with attachment or aversion or ignorance. So as Hobbes says to Calvin, as they're zooming down the hill, we're heading for that cliff. How many times do we hold our hands over our eyes and we resist our experience and say, I don't want to know about this. I'm not interested in life. I'm not interested in this experience. I'm only interested in this other experience. And then there's this huge crash. Both of them are knocked out. And then Calvin says, careful. We don't want to learn anything from this. And we do that so much. Are we really here? Can we face that we're here in a human body to learn? And if we look at today, how many times were we really interested in learning from our experience? And how many times were we really not interested in our experience? And can both be okay? A retreat is a time for spiritual learning, the willingness to explore spiritually, to take risks, to make so-called mistakes. So it could be when the morning comes and we're awake a little bit before the wake-up bell, do we curl up into the pleasure of that sleep? Or do we, are we willing to take the risk to get up a little bit earlier than we might have. That's an example. It doesn't mean we have to do that. It's just an example. So spiritual exploration means that in some way, at some point, we're asking a question fundamentally like, who am I? Or who are you? What is suffering? You know, what is happiness? What is, what is, a, what is a body? What is a human mind or heart? And ultimately, with mindfulness, we're exploring a fundamental misperception that we're separate. 
in applying mindfulness to our moment-to-moment experience, uh, we apply mindfulness to change. The Buddha taught that with each moment of consciousness, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, feeling, thinking, uh, that there's a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling that comes with that moment of consciousness. It's not the next moment or the next moment. They're simultaneous. Uh, so when we start to grasp that world that we're born into, that, that is a given, that we never know when a next moment will be pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, we can understand why Calvin says, I don't want to know about this. Or we say to ourselves at times, I don't want to really know what life really is. Uh, But at times, we'll see that we're willing to say, okay, or yes, I'm willing to explore what's happening in my life, which is the opposite of resistance. So exploration in the mindfulness practice isn't analytical. It's not done through conceptual knowledge. And this isn't our way of figuring things out. Our usual way of figuring things, things out are, are, are being lost in conditioned thought patterns. I mentioned the other night that uh, Suzuki Roshi described mindfulness as a soft readiness. And this means that because life is changing, mindfulness is a soft readiness that's ready for anything to happen anything that comes downstream in our moment-to-moment experience. Mindfulness is very soft, but it's so powerful, it can be with any experience. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. When mindfulness is present, we're free, and you've had moments already of that mindfulness. You've had moments of that freedom. Sometimes we don't always remember that mindfulness is radical because we're saying that it doesn't matter what the experience is. It matters how we relate to it. So if we relate to our experience with mindfulness, uh, there's a chance for freedom, wisdom, compassion, If we relate to an experience with resistance, we suffer. Freedom means that we're not dependent on experience for happiness. And sometimes we forget that that's what's motivating us. And we'll get so caught in wanting to control or manipulate our experience. And then it's like, at some point in the retreat, we'll get back in touch with that pure motivation of freedom, not wanting to be dependent on experience for our happiness. Uh, So resistance is what brings weariness. It's tiring to not be with the truth of things. Whenever we can touch into the truth of things, there is that wholeheartedness because there's wisdom, compassion, and it will feel wonderful, which is energizing. On this nice um, 
spring, summer evening, I wanted to read part of a, a quotation from Krishnamurti. Just to be vulnerable, to be sensitive, like that new green leaf that was born yesterday, to face rain, storms, wind, darkness, and light. You know, that's life, and that's the retreat. You know, each moment is newborn because of change. Newborn, it dies. Newborn, it dies. Just to be vulnerable, to be sensitive, like that new green leaf that was born yesterday. And can we remember at times to realize that we're here to face rain, storms, wind, darkness, and light? So what kind of retreat did we want? (laughs) What kind of weather do we prefer? Do we prefer no body pain? Or do we prefer something else than what we got for lunch? Or would would we prefer a different sleeping place? Or no sleepiness? No sleepiness in the sittings. On my self retreat, I had the most amazing thought that I still get astonished by, but it, because it was so funny. And I was sitting there and just heard this little thought coming, well, if we could just get rid of all the difficult people in the world, you know, I'd be happy. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, it's so funny. Yeah, right. <laughs> so we could just, no difficult people, no fear, just pleasure, no difficulty. What do we want? Do we want what we want, or do we want the truth? Some of you heard me describe uh, my self-retreat, and on my self-retreat there were 44 guineas hens screaming from about 4 in the morning till 8 at night. And then the dogs would take over and bark all night. Um, And I came into the retreat quite attached to getting some sleep. In fact, it was my only goal. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, And there were some moments where I would say to myself, do I want to be free or do I want to get rid of the guinea hens? (laughs) (laughs) And you might ask yourself, Whatever you are struggling with today, <laughs> do, I, do I want to be free or do I want to get rid of this? An aspect of mindfulness that's so important is shifting from the conceptual knowledge uh, to ultimate knowledge. Uh, so, for example, when we ring the bell, The word bell is a concept, it's conceptual knowledge. In the moment of hearing the bell, we can learn to bring our attention to hearing consciousness. We can be aware of knowing the sound, or we can be aware of the direct vibration of hearing itself. They're distinguishable, and both are non-conceptual knowledge. So just notice if you can be aware of the direct vibration of hearing. 
most likely a thought bell came through your mind, at least, <laughs> at the least, the word bell. It could have been wondering where this bell came from, and if it was from Japan, what part of Japan. And I wonder who brought it here, or maybe they bought it here in the States. I wonder if we, I wrote a note to the office. <laughs> I could find out where they got it. You, you see the difference between just being with the sound of the bell and how much we can get lost. We call it papancha. It's this endless thinking, and we forget where the thinking started. But it's possible to not get so caught up in being asleep at the wheel. So we learn to, you know, we encourage you to notice the difference between the concept and the sound. You, you don't need to stop the concept from coming. Because if you're in the present moment, there'll be the sound of the bell or the sound of a car or whatever. You bring your attention to it. Then in the present moment, a thought might come. And if you're with the process of that, you just make, you're aware of thinking. And then you can bring your attention back to the, the direct vibration of hearing again. If you notice judging, you can either get lost in the judgment or be aware of the process of how life is happening. It's just judging. You don't have to stop that process or judge yourself for it. And then if you notice a judgment and judging oneself, at some point you can be mindful of it. Oh, yeah. It's just judging. That's just like the swan that Steve described last night, letting itself nervously get into the stream of life. You'll notice you pop out, you can pop back in. In fact, we, we go in and out a lot. Say we're being mindful of the rising and falling movement at the abdomen. If mindfulness is happening with some continuity, it can be just some moments with the rising movement. We might notice tension or lightness or movement. And then you might have a thought, so what? A doubt. Uh, but there are implications to having our attention concurrent. That word is important. The attention concurrent with what's happening. Uh, we've let the universe touch us in that moment. We're not lost in concept. We're with the direct, ultimate reality of life. So we've touched the truth of life. Uh, so this touching the truth of life isn't done analytically or conceptually. And if we're able to drop in like the swan into the direct experience, intuitive wisdom can arise. That's why, you know, the so what, at times it won't arise. But if you have some patience and keep at it, there are times that we'll realize something. And the realization, again, isn't done through the thinking process. We're not thinking about the breath. So the word breath is just a word, just like the bell. The sound of it is different than the word bell. There can be a realization that I is just a word and breath or abdomen is just a word. Uh, the, this is described as yata buddha jnana. It's knowledge of things as they are. 
knowledge of things as they are. And it's in this case we're having an ultimate knowledge of rising, falling versus conceptual knowledge of rising, falling. Sometimes we might understand in that that there's no separate I, there's no separate body. In that moment, there's no sense of separate self. There's just air element coming and going by itself. If we can do this with some continuity or drop in and out of this over the days, the understanding deepens. And the more we understand that, the more we act in this world without self-centeredness. But it's not just that, it's like there's happiness. There's the happiness of knowing we're not perceiving reality, we're in touch with the truth, we're connected. If you're noticing lifting, moving, placing, and placing the foot, and we're not lost in a concept about foot or my leg, uh, there's a possibility for something beside conceptual knowledge to happen. Uh, so the direct experience free from concept, maybe we notice hardness or heaviness. There sometimes is the realization that that's all there is in that moment. There's earth element and we're not separate. The, the, the ground and the, the body and me and, and outside of me isn't separate. There's just the hardness, earth element. So we realize in this that what I've called my body or your body or that chipmunk (laughs) or that bird or whatever is just a transforming process of earth, air, fire, and water. This range of physical phenomena, if you know your own body, you'll know all physical phenomena. I find that... um, One of the most interesting places to notice this is in eating. Uh, So some people think that eating is uh, just something that we do here. But it's also a mindfulness practice. It's meant to be a seamless practice from when we wake up till when we go to sleep at night. Uh, And some of my deepest realizations early in my retreat practice were often around (laughs) eating a banana at breakfast. And so I would just really be aware of touching the banana and wondering, you know, at what point, it's such an interesting question, at what point does that banana become you? Is it the point that you touch it? And then if you make little soft mental notes like touching, lifting, opening, putting the (laughs) bite of the banana in, biting, chewing, Now, is it when you've chewed it a lot and it's about to go down? Is that when it becomes me? And then when it comes out, is that when it's no longer me? (laughs) This is is inquiry, and it's not meant to get us lost in concept as much to really pay attention to receiving the universe, being touched by it, touching the truth. Even when you brush your hair, and hair comes out, if you have any left, (laughs) Uh, or when we cut our fingernails, or anything, when we wash our skin, we don't pay attention. And we're missing 
that these places, the body, is the most amazing place to explore the misperception of being a separate self. One time, Albert Einstein was asked um, whether he was afraid of death, and he answered, I feel such solidarity with all living things that it does not matter to me where the individual begins and ends. There are three basic truths that we can come to understand, truths of existence itself in bringing our attention close to our experience, connecting, connecting, receiving, letting our experience come and go by itself. And we can come to see that what we call an I or me or you are really a changing process of sounds body sensations, breath, thoughts, emotions, coming and going. And as you pay attention, you'll see that that solid process that we call me or you starts to become less solid. We start understanding impermanence and that we're not who we appear to be. So once we start to notice change, we'll often start to understand dukkha, that we never really know what's going to happen, that experience itself can't leave leave us with a lasting happiness. And then we can come to understand the substantial, uh, the insubstantial quality of any experience. If you look very closely at the breath, or a thought, or a sound, how is it that we get so caught up in it. If you look so closely, it's so, subst- it's so insubstantial. You know, and this is something we're really meant to, to learn. And to, we, we get disenchanted from experience, from seeing how insubstantial it is. It's not meant to get us un- in an unhealthy detachment uh, but we start not taking experience so serious, so personally and overly seriously. If there are times when we feel like we're really caught up in the conceptual world, if we're getting really lost and reactive to what's happening, it's possible to just know that we're lost. We can bring that much awareness to it and learn not to take that personally as well. It's like going through these uh, rain, storms, darkness, and light. Sometimes it gets very dark on a retreat or life, and we feel really lost and identified in in our dream. We might be resisting what's happening. You can be aware of resistance. Allow it, accept it, feel how the body is and anchor with something neutral. The idea of anchoring with neutral is that you have a sanctuary, a refuge. If the breath doesn't hold your attention, you can go to the surface of the body or sound. If you find that at times you get lost 
or lost in resistance, um, please be careful of judging your practice. There'll be times when the experience will be very mindful or concentrated and energetic, and then there'll be times when it isn't, and we'll feel that sense of being sick, of being here, or not understanding what we're doing here. Uh, I found that over years of practice that this was such a critical place for me, if I could be okay with, with being lost, uh, then I wouldn't tailspin into a huge self-hatred attack and then massive doubt in myself uh, and then fear of continuing on. It becomes a vicious cycle. Uh, we call that a multiple hindrance attack. And I wanted to read a letter from a yogi at a retreat I taught um, a while ago who got caught up in a multiple hindrance attack. And the hindrances are sleepiness, restlessness, doubt, aversion, and attachment. Uh, She gave me permission to read this, by the way. This was in California, and she was a city, city girl in the um, hills uh, around Spirit Rock. Dear managers, so I was taking a walk on one of the paths, think city girl, feeling proud about being adventurous. And all was peaceful and well until the woods. A big black spider, see picture on back. glommed onto my sweatshirt, I began squealing, so much for noble silence, and then started running. I ditched the path and headed for the field to get out of the woods. Unfortunately, I thoroughly disturbed some roosting turkeys, and they started squawking, which scared me. She wrote that in big letters, scared me. I ran back into the woods, and on... (laughs) and onto the path and picked up the pace. Then it crossed my mind that I was sure to be a mountain lion's dinner. You have to know that on the bulletin board they had a little pamphlet about mountain lions that brought up some fear for me too. Then it crossed my mind that I was sure to be a mountain lion's dinner, so I tried walking, saying to myself, be mindful, be mindful. (laughs) But it was all too much. So I said, screw mindfulness. (laughs) (laughs) Screw the mountain lions. And I took off at a high rate of speed. (laughs) And in parentheses, she says, for me anyway, seeing as I quit smoking four days ago, my my lungs aren't able to keep up with my legs. (laughs) As I was cruising past the dead stumps of trees, homes of mountain lions, I I spotted in passing the dreaded poison oak. I am now convinced, since I was running and squealing like an idiot and not paying attention, that I am covered in poison oak oil. (laughs) I threw my clothes on the floor and washed my face and hands, but I'm worried. I saw the laundry soap in the manager's office, but it didn't seem to be special poison oak soap. I didn't see anything poison oak related. (laughs) 
I did notice. <laughs> I did notice, though, that you have a wonderful supply of Chinese herbs, and I'm wondering if I can buy some. <laughs> anyway, what do you recommend I do besides shutting up? <laughs> That's a multiple hindrance attack. <laughs> and we're all laughing because we know what it's like. <laughs> the spider has suction cups on it. The Buddha taught that when the mind is restless, he or she knows that the mind is restless. And we can apply that to every hindrance. If we can be that simple about it, it's that simple. Because in that, when, when the mind is restless, he or she knows that the mind is restless. There's implied in that everything. It implies that we we recognize, oh, restlessness. Restlessness is high energy and low concentration. So we start to recognize it. It means that when we bring our attention to the breath, the attention slips off. When we bring it to the body, it can't concentrate, so it slips off. And so we need to open up the attention. We start to get, oh, sometimes this, this hindrance is called restlessness and worry. And you know when there's a lot of energy and we can't concentrate and we can't be with the restlessness itself, we'll often use up the energy worrying. Uh, so there's a way to bring that energy and concentration into balance by opening up the attention, first with the surface of the body, then sound. You might open your eyes. If it feels like you want to run out of the hall screaming, I wouldn't recommend it, but it might be that you just need to put your knees up and wait it out a bit, or just stand and stand with the eyes open. And it will shift. Usually if, if there's that much restlessness intensely, you might go outside and do a faster walk back and forth until it balances. Although for some people, doing a very, very slow walk the whole 45 minutes would be helpful. So you have to... This is what I mean by willing to learn and experimenting. We're all different with that. Because some people, they might go out and walk fast and get even more stirred up. Uh, so you have to get to know yourself. When we notice doubt, do we recognize it? Because I find that doubt is very insidious. It finds a thought pattern that we are the most seduced by. The retreat that I described <laughs> where the first night that I got there and the, the guinea hens were screaming and then the uh, dogs barked all night, that first morning I got up and I thought, my retreat's ruined. I didn't see it right away that it was doubt. It's like it's a thought pattern I wasn't used to. Uh -huh. And then the next morning, after trying to um, figure out a way to ditch the dogs and the guinea hens that night and um, 
I bailed the ship, went up to this little cabin, thinking that they wouldn't follow me. <laughs> and they followed me. <laughs> and then about two in the morning, when the dogs started chasing the cows all over the field, and it was cows mooing plus dogs plus guinea hens, I knew I was defeated. <laughs> and I walked back to the house. Uh, and that was, that was the moment I woke up and I thought, oh, I ruined my retreat. You know, I'm just running away. And when I finally saw it, I could work with it. I mean, it was like I had to, I didn't really want to come to a retreat and look at aversion. And yet it was just what I needed to get more liberated. So whatever you think you're getting here as an obstacle will be your teacher. You might not be that enthused about it at this point in the retreat, but I can guarantee that that's how it is. With doubt, sometimes it's helpful to actually reflect back. It's the only time I usually recommend it. Uh, But usually we have a a doubt attack and then fear uh, because there's been something unpleasant. We haven't been able to be mindful of it. And then we run. And we feel defeated by the experience, but what we've actually been defeated by is our own aversion and not being able to open to it. And then we get gun-shy with that particular experience. It doesn't mean we have to force anything, uh, but for me, when I notice doubt, and if I get caught in it, like this retreat, I didn't, but if I do, I'll, I'll say, oh, there's a recipe for doubt. You just take a look back and you'll understand and be willing to start again. So with all the hindrances, whether it's um, the wanting mind, the aversive mind, the sleepiness, the restlessness or doubt, you can apply what I'm saying to all of them. If the mind is um, caught in desire, he or she knows that the mind is caught in desire. One tries to be mindful of that experience. And in anything in this Vipassana practice, if you feel like you can't, if you're getting lost, head for the hills, meaning go to something neutral. You don't have to stay in it if you can't be mindful. You're meant to back off to the neutral, to the breath or sound, if that's easier for you, if you get lost in it. There was a woman at the retreat that um, I taught the same retreat with a a woman who drew the picture of the spider. And she had been at the same retreat the year before. Uh, And last year when she came to the retreat, she was very healthy and fine. And this year when she came to the retreat, she was in a wheelchair and she had a very advanced case already of Lou Gehrig's disease. Uh, And she came to my interview group uh, and I I knew that something uh, very uh, big had changed in her life. And she didn't say anything till the end of the group. So we were listening to, you know how groups are, there's a lot of uh, stuff that people talk about and share. And then it came to her uh, and she, she talked about her fear 
you know, in her fear of dependency. And because she could, she could hardly talk, she had to speak very slowly. So she was saying how, you know, she was able to apply mindfulness to her speech because she was having to speak slowly. You know how hard it is for us to be mindful of our speech, but she was being forced to, and she was appreciating it. And then when she was talking about her fear of of being so dependent that people would have to take care of her, um, she, she said two things that were so inspiring. She said, you know, I have all the teachings I need. I just have to apply them. I just have to keep applying them. And she said it with such joy, you know, that she'd received something already and that that's all she needed. And then the other thing she said is that whenever I get afraid, I just ask myself, am I okay right now? And she started to see that she was projecting a lot of the fear onto the future. And this was very hard, but she kept bringing herself to the present moment and saying, okay, can I be with this fear? Because really, I'm okay right now. Uh, and And then she looked at me and she said, do you think I'm, I'm being clear? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> you know, we were all just so really inspired and moved. And the people left the group having that feeling of courage and confidence and being willing to learn. There was one other woman at the retreat who last year was her first retreat. And she was terrified to go to the late night sit. You know, she was so afraid of facing the physical pain. And she knew, she knew um, that I was busy and she didn't want to ask me for help. But she, she, we talked about it and she said, all I need is for you to look in my eyes when you walk into the hall. And that was our agreement. So that whole retreat I would walk in and she'd wait for me and I'd look at her and we'd walk in the hall. Uh, and at the end of that retreat, she felt so, so good about her own courage. And then at the end of this retreat this year, I would see sometimes that she'd be in the hall at 11 o'clock. I would peek in. Uh, even though, you know, we go through real ups and downs in a retreat, you know there's something very strengthening about this. It's that ability to face the storms, the rain, the darkness, and the light. We know very deeply that we are really touching the truth of life, and that that's what we're here on this earth for, to learn spiritually, to give birth to more and more wisdom and compassion, and then to share it with this world. So the emphasis, hopefully, is on learning. That that's really the pure motivation for being here on retreat and on this earth. And the secret to happiness is that pure motivation, that willingness to learn. 
And we'll learn over and over on retreat that the suffering in life is really when we've got the hands over our eyes and when we're resisting what's happening in the present moment and saying, careful, I don't want to learn anything from this. The Buddha taught that the opposite of ignorance is waking up and that the secret to happiness is being awake. And we do this with a pure listening, a pure receptivity, willingness. Mother Teresa was asked by an interview, interviewer, when you pray to God, what do you say? And she said, when I pray, I don't say anything, I just listen. And then the interviewer asked, when God answers you, what does he say? And Mother Teresa answered, he doesn't say anything, he just listens. (laughs) And then she said, and if you don't understand this, I can't explain it to you. That's what we're doing here. We're developing that quality of no expectation, but just such utter, deep sensitivity, vulnerability, and listening. Let's sit for a minute. May we be like that newborn green leaf that's here to face storms, rain, darkness, and light. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.